0: Your great-great-grandparents would have been baffled by the modern comforts we take for granted in our homes today. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, travel writer Bill Bryson takes us on a journey around our
1: own homes. Never in history has domesticity changed so radically and so quickly.
0: The author of A Walk in the Woods and Notes from a Small Island tells us about his latest adventure all within the walls of the Victorian parsonage in rural England that he calls home. He'll explain where our modern notions of comfort and privacy come from. And later in the hour, we take a look at some really old homes and the people who lived in them with two expert guides to ancient Greece.
2: We're exactly the same species with the same mental capabilities, with the same stresses and strains and worries, and their expression of their life can be seen in the stones you're looking at.
0: And we'll turn to you, our listeners, to get your advice on making yourself at home while traveling without breaking the bank. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. If these walls could talk. Well, according to Bill Bryson, they do. He'll join us in just a moment to tell us what the walls and chimneys and windows in his Victorian home in England have taught him about why we live the way we do. And if you know how to listen, you can hear the rocks talking as well. A little later in the hour, two experts on ancient Greece tell us how they reconstruct the rubble of antiquity to hear the stories of the distant past. Whether he's writing about science, language, or travel, Bill Bryson's books are both funny and smart. The best-selling author is a master at turning the seemingly isolated and mundane fact into something both meaningful and fascinating. He's well-known for his humorous travel memoirs, and in his new book, At Home, A Short History of Private Life, Bill Bryson takes the notion of travel writing in a whole new direction, indoors. Realizing how little he knew about the 19th-century parsonage he and his family live in, Bryson decided to travel through his own house, one room at a time. And from what he found, he wrote a history of the world without leaving home. Bill Bryson, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Rick. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, this whole idea about learning more about your house to learn more about from where we came is just a a great opportunity for a book. Tell us how chimneys and population growth have anything to do with each other.
1: Originally, uh, throughout most of the Middle Ages, from the moment that Anglo-Saxons moved into Britain uh, after the Romans withdrew, right up to the time of, of Chaucer, say, in the 14th century, houses were primarily one room. They were a type of house known as the hall house, and the house was the hall, and the hall was the house. And sometimes they were fairly grand, which is why the word hall is still denotes a grand place in a lot of contexts, things like Carnegie Hall or the Hall of Fame or the halls of Montezuma uh, and so on. Because once upon a time, that was really a, quite a grand space, but it was just one room in which everybody in the household, all the members of the family and servants and so on, all lived together and did everything together in in one great space. There was one open fire in the middle of the room, and the smoke went up into the ceiling space and just kind of leaked out the roof. So the space up near the rafters was not usable in any way. It needed the invention of a a real good chimney uh, in a domestic setting to make it possible to kind of channel the smoke out of that upstairs space. And once that happened, then it, it very quickly occurred to people they could start to use that space, and the head of the household could build more private space up there and it was from that point, around about the time of, of Geoffrey Chaucer, that people began, the wealthier people, the house owner, began to kind of retire from his servants and move with his family into the more private parts of the house. And that's really when houses began to spread out and take on all kinds of new rooms.
0: Isn't that the reason why chimneys helped population grow is uh,
1: people had more privacy? The two were not disconnected, and there was, there was greater privacy. I mean, you weren't doing these things in front of lots and lots of people, but it was still until quite recent times, it was not at all unusual to, you know, to sleep in the same room have a servant sleeping in your bedroom. So an awful lot of uh, procreating was going on with at least one servant present. The whole idea of, of what constitutes absolute, solemn privacy is, is really quite recent. I mean, it only dates from about 1800 onwards. So sitting on the toilet was even a a thing you might do not alone. Today, if you go to Mount Vernon, George Washington's home, just outside the back door, there's a two-seater privy, which um, the father of our country may well have used himself in company with uh, someone else. There wasn't the same concept of of doing these things alone in solitude that we have now. Uh, It began when the houses branched out and started having upstairs, but it took a long time for for that to become established. So that's a fascinating thing that comes across in your book is how
0: fundamental concepts like privacy, and it was really interesting to hear your thoughts on the
1: concept of comfortable. It was a big change in the 19th century, wasn't it? Exactly. Uh, the word comfortable in the, in the modern sense of of being relaxed and kind of comfy um, only dates from 1770. And before that, comfort was something that you gave to people who were injured or distressed or wounded soldiers and so on. But comfort wasn't something that you thought of. It just didn't exist enough that people had the idea of, of comfort in the sense of furniture or clothing or the way we use it now. And it's a really interesting thing that, that comfort is something that we've, you would think people would strive for instinctively, right, from the very beginning. And in a sense, we have, but but most of the things that we have nowadays that make us comfortable are really only, have only existed in any kind of abundance since the end of the 19th century. So comfort is a really, really modern concept. So your house was built in 1851
0: in a small town in England. In your work putting this book at home, A Short History of Private Life, as you put that book together, did it occur to you 1851 is
1: a great vintage for a house to be a rack upon which to hang all this information? Well, yeah, I mean, I I believed so because, uh, for one thing, anybody alive in 1851, and the the vicar, the rector who built our house in 1851, I mean, he lived until the early years of the twentieth century. So I- anyone in that period, it was right, it was right on the cusp between the old kind of medieval world and the modern one. The rector who built our house and moved into it, you know, he he was living in a world of horse drawn carriages and candlelight and and all of that kind of very old-fashioned stuff, but he lived into an age that had electricity and movies and the Wright Brothers and skyscrapers and all the things that we associate with the modern age. So it was it was a period that was just on the cusp of, of going from the old way of the world to, to a new way, and never in history has domesticity changed so radically and so quickly. Plus, you were born on the centennial of your own home. I was, indeed, day Just a kind of happy happy coincidence, and and the other thing that was, uh, was useful or relevant from the point of view of the book was that 1851 in England was the year of the Great Exhibition, which was the first World's Fair, and the Great Exhibition was the first time that there was a kind of World's Fair that was devoted to the idea of household implements and the kind of comforts of home, the things that we uh, associate with a sort of fine living. And that was, again, it was a pretty radical idea in the middle of the 19th century. Well, you kick off your book with the chapter on the, the Crystal Palace, right? Yeah, and the Crystal Palace was this wonderful thing. I mean, for the short time that it existed in, in London, it was the largest building in the world. But, I mean, think about this, though. I mean, when I think of the Crystal
0: Palace, they're just feeling their energy and their excitement about the dawn of the modern age. It was made out of, what, iron and glass, and they were able to build it on schedule, celebrate it, and then take it down like a bigger
1: Erector set. Yes, and it was it was designed by a gardener. It was said, you know, Joseph Paxton, who was the gardener at Chatsworth House, a a big stately home in in Derbyshire. Nobody could come up with a, a design that would allow them to build a large enough exhibition hall in the time available and to the budget available. And he came up with the idea of, well, why don't we make it essentially just like a very very big greenhouse because he was a gardener. He was used to building greenhouses. And so that's what they did. They built a greenhouse. But it was a greenhouse that was absolutely enormous. It was big enough to hold four St. Paul's cathedrals. So it was on a scale that was colossal. It must have and just blown it, people away. They must have traveled from far and wide and just their jaws dropped at the wonder
0: of this big glass and iron building.
1: Yeah, well, nobody had ever seen anything like it. I mean, we're used to seeing glassy buildings now. I mean, you go to yeah. you know downtown of any big city and, and most of the buildings... What you see is mostly reflective glass, but in 1851, you know, buildings were not made with a lot of glass. So this would have been doubly dazzling, not just the scale of it, but the fact that it looked so light and ethereal. People often likened it to a soap bubble. But the symbolism of that being a transition between, you know, the old world and the modern age. Talk about lighting for a minute. Yeah. Well, something everybody should do. I mean, all people should do sometime. I did this myself when I was writing the book. It's a very interesting experiment. It's just draw all the curtains in a room late at night at home and light one candle and then try and live for just 15 minutes by the light of a single candle. Try and read a newspaper or a book or something. You'll be amazed. It is essentially impossible for us now in the 21st century to get by with one candle. It's just too dim a light and it's a really, really annoying light because candles flicker and so the light that it casts on your book or whatever is... Just completely hopelessly inadequate, and yet you know right up until the time of you know our great grandparents, certainly that was about the amount of illumination that most people had in, in their homes in the evening, unless it was a really big occasion or something. But most people got by with if you were at home, you and your wife and children or whatever would sit around by the light of a single candle that 's all there was. Bill, when we're talking about chimneys, I think of an inglenook. And when you travel, you go to these grand,
0: stately English homes, and, and the fireplaces are big enough to actually sit inside of them. There's little
1: stone benches on either side. Tell us about the inglenook. Well, yes, I mean the house I live in in England now, this the house that's at the heart of this book, is like like many English houses, is not very warm in the winter time. The central heating doesn't work very well. It's full of drafts and and it's uncomfortable, and we we get by on the fire from open fireplaces in the two rooms that we live in the most. And you have to get very, very close to the fires in order to get warm. And, of course, it tends to make you very warm on the part that's facing the fire, but the back of you or whatever part is facing away from it is still quite chilly. So the whole idea of the Ingle was that it essentially allowed you to as it were, get into the fireplace or to be in a much cozier environment. It really was a necessity because uh, it could be really cold. The, the thing about fireplaces is that they're not very efficient ways of producing heat. They're really good ways of extracting smoke and getting kind of toxic smoke out of the room, but they're not very good way of producing heat into a room because most of the heat goes straight up the flue.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Bill Bryson, and Bill's latest book is At Home, A Short History of Private Life. Bill, it's a fascinating book, and your conclusion was quite surprising to me and also fascinating. Tell us how our quest for comfort could actually take us a different direction.
1: Well, we live in a very interesting time because we are able to enjoy all of the conveniences that you know burning copious amounts of electricity and using up lots of earth's resources provide us. We're very, very lucky in that. You know we are all very, very comfortable at home, but we also know that the earth is um, facing perilous times with global warming, and so we're in this, those of us who are alive now are in a, in a really lucky position that we can have all of the comforts and convenience that all of these that living fairly extravagant lifestyles bring us. But at the same time, when you look out your windows, you still see a very green, happy earth out there. We don't know how much longer that can continue for, how sustainable that is. So the point I was simply making at the end of the book is that we are in this position that we've worked very hard to make ourselves comfortable, but the very things that are making us comfortable could actually pose a long-term risk to the planet. What a terrible thing that would be if if in the quest just to be ever more comfortable uh, and to be able to wear kind of summery clothing in winter at our own home that uh, we we ended up essentially ruining the planet.
0: I have this fascinating image I got from your book of you standing on that little platform on the rooftop of your 1851 home surveying the estate of the vicar who built that thing so long ago and and it's so lush and green like England is today 150 years later let's hope uh, somebody can stand on your rooftop in 150 years
1: from today and, and see the same lush and green environment well, that was my absolutely my conclusion of the book let's you know, hope we can sustain all this
0: Bill Bryson At Home A Short History of Private Life congratulations on your book and best wishes thanks for being with us
1: thank you very much Rick it's been my pleasure
0: Steps me away But in my mind I'm always going home Up next, we rewind the clock to ancient Greece and Rome, and later we take your calls on how to travel well on a budget. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One reason to travel is to connect to our ancient roots. People make pilgrimages to places and cultures from where they originated. For me, that's Europe, the Middle East, and the Fertile Crescent. Traveling there and wandering among the the rubble of ancient civilizations, you can imagine those early societies. It's thrilling if you can put that rubble together and resurrect those stones. But it's not all must-see stuff. B.C. does not mean must-be-seen. I'm joined today by two guides who live in the Mediterranean world and are going to talk with us about antiquities and archaeology. Colin Clement, who lives in Alexandria, in Egypt, and Anastasia Gaetanou, who lives in Thessaloniki, in northern Greece. Anastasia and Colin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. When you think about going to an ancient site and giving it meaning, how does an American who lives in a town that might be 100 years old go to some pile of rubble and adequately... Understand it, Anastasia.
3: Well, it's not always easy. A very important thing is um, trying to understand what this meant when it was built, because today we have this tendency of going into the archaeological site, seeing the stones that are lying all around, and after the third side, maybe, or after the second, the most common thing that we hear is, well, <laughs> another pile of ruins. And it's not exactly that. There's a lot of history behind it. And that history does not has to do just with uh, historical events, but it has to do with uh, social development, has to do with um, architecture, has to do with everything that is important in every society. And we have to understand that as we're living today, people used to live at that time. So try to connect that with those periods, try to connect it with other countries, try to connect with whatever you have seen and with the way you're living today. And then you'll understand that these stones are a lot more meaningful than you think. And try to to imagine it in your mind of how it used to be. Try to imagine these these stones one on the other. That's the
0: challenge. It's not just the corner Uh, of a building. People lived there. 3,000 years ago or something like this. Colin, what's the trick that you've used uh, uh, effectively to help Americans resurrect that rubble?
2: You have to make it somehow meaningful and relevant, as I think Anastasia was pointing out, that, that, that people lived in it. People actually lived and worked and worshipped. And the people who did that were the same as us. There's a, sometimes a tendency to think that archaeology or antiquities were the dim and distant past. You know, it was a before time, and we all thought differently. Well, we didn't. We're exactly the same species with the same mental capabilities and with the same stresses and strains and worries. And their expression of their life can be seen in the stones you're looking at.
0: So you can be in the middle of the forum in Athens and talk about history's first hippie, Diogenes. Absolutely, yes. I mean, you talk about the people who inhabited the stones. So how do you make how stones. do you make Diogenes real? He's sitting there, living in a discarded bathtub or something like this, right? He's an anti-materialist. That's the romantic sort of simplistic uh, tour guide stuff. But how would you bring people back to what is the spirit of Diogenes? <laughs> a kid undressed and sit in the bathtub in the <laughs> forum. I mean, isn't it the story? The he had, all he had was a bowl that he collected handouts in and he was this inspirational philosopher.
3: And there is this great incident with Alexander the Great when he went there and he saw Diogenes, who was living actually in a big barrel, not in a bathtub. But anyway, he was standing in front of him and he told him that he was the most great philosopher and that he admired him and he could have from him whatever he wanted, whatever you ask. And what he asked was, just step a bit aside because you're hiding the sun.
0: Do you buy that, Colin? Yes. That actually happened? or it's the It spirit doesn't matter of it. whether it happened or not. It's the, it's
2: the spirit and the philosophy that is being expressed by these stories. Which and there's important. a grain of truth there and that makes yeah. it worthwhile.
4: Yeah.
0: Now, as tour guides, we hear a lot of information about these ancient sites and, and we don't really always know what's true and what's not. And you have to sort through all of that. Uh, I know for travelers, a lot of times we try to understand appreciation of Greek architecture. you got Doric, Ionic, and Corinthian orders of the architecture and everybody looks at the capital of the column to understand that. And I remember once I was on a tour and somebody told me the columns get skinnier and taller as they evolve. And Doric is eight times as tall as its base width. Ionic is 10 times as tall as its base width and Corinthian is 11 times as tall as its base width. So I thought, that's interesting, but I don't know if it's true. So I asked another guide. I gave him that story and I said, do you know if that's true? And he said, I don't know. And then about half hour later on the tour, he said, now if you notice this column here, it's eight times as tall as its base width. He just took what I told him. My response
2: to that would be, who cares? Who cares? That's That's not what matters. It's like, why were the who built these things and what was their function at the time and what did they express? If you want to look at the difference between Doric and Corinthian, you simply need to go to Athens and you look at the Parthenon, which is Doric, and then you go down the hill and you look at the temple of Olympian Zeus, which is Corinthian. I like that. And think, who built which, when, and why? And then all
0: all of the architectural details is who cares? Let's humanize it. Yeah. So for me, that is the ongoing challenge is being able to resurrect that rubble and to put it into terms that people can understand. A lot of times... It's also complicated by the fact that this has been picked clean over the last two thousand years. Entire medieval ages there was no sense for history, was there? It was just these buildings were seen as quarries where you've got pre cut stones and people could cart away.
3: I don't look at it this way. Not really. Uh, Definitely, they did not have the same significance for those people in the Middle Ages, let's say, as they do for us. But um, I think that they kept on living like this because they were used and used and used again. And you see a great temple of the antiquity that was used as a church later on. It was used as a palace by the Franks later on. It became a mosque later on. And it's still standing there even if it's half ruined. But it's still standing there, and you can see all that history on that building. And I find it fascinating, actually. And that is also many times the reason why they're still standing.
0: Because they were used.
2: Because they were socially useful. used. The ones that weren't, that were used as a quarry, had it had been right. decided that they were not socially useful.
0: So that's why the Pantheon in Rome, for instance, survived so well, because it went directly almost from being a temple to all the gods, Pantheon, to a Christian church dedicated to the martyrs. It didn't have that interim period exactly. where nobody cared about it and it could be cannibalized. This sort of al- almost
2: unthinking reverence for things that are antique is very, very recent just because it's old, is it actually significant or, or interesting?
0: That's a modern thing, huh?
2: Yes, I think it's very much a modern thing. And I've never heard anybody actually question that. So you're yeah. thinking maybe,
0: well, why, why does it matter? It's oh, just, old.
2: Why, just because it is old. And, in, and to say that the ancients or in the medieval times they had no appreciation for things that were old, that's simply, that's not true. Maybe they had less appreciation for the building unless the building had social utility for the moment. They certainly had a great appreciation of the knowledge and the thought that had oh, yeah. gone in the past. And ultimately, that's probably more useful some clunking great
0: Doric temple. Now, thinking of an appreciation of some clunking Doric great temple, it was only in the early modern times that European archaeologists would go to these ancient places and bring those treasures back to their capitals in Berlin or London or Vienna. 19th century, mainly. 19th century. It started
3: in the 19th century, end of the 18th. Of course, yeah. there were people even before that, and they were already in the 13th, 14th century. But the first of those who were called also the amateurs of uh, classical art, they were interested more in treasures. They would excavate, but they would do it in a very fast and, well, not that careful way. And they were interested in finding the gold, the the jewelry, and that's what they took. And a lot of it uh, is lost forever. We don't know what happened. But in the 19th century, there was this trend of rediscovering antiquity and the classical times, which were the 5th century BC. And suddenly we see that in this time period, uh, they started documenting their excavation. They started really trying to find information about this this era that was gone so long ago. And they're trying to rebuild that world. And that is actually where modern archaeology starts.
0: Colin, now you live in Alexandria in Egypt. I think the most beautiful thing from Egypt, ancient Egypt, I've ever seen, is in Berlin, Nefertiti. And the head of Nefertiti, yeah. The bust yeah, of Nefertiti, beautiful yeah. statue. How did Nefertiti get to Germany?
2: Because in the early years of archaeology in Egypt, it was foreign nations, it was foreign European nations, that were actually interested in it, sending over their their you know scientists and in inverted commas, who, as Anastasia said, would. Sometimes they were more or less interested in discovering things in context. Other times they were, they were they were collecting stuff to be exhibited in museums. It was art history rather than history history. Oh, okay. It and was look- a German, it was a Swiss German who discovered that and given the conditions of archaeology in the time, the inventors of the discoverers of any particular archaeological site had the right to take a certain number of Um, artifacts with them.
0: Oh, is that the deal? So they let these German diggers in Mm -hmm. on condition... And they would dig and dig and dig and and reveal this ancient stuff because they had the wherewithal to do it. And the Egyptian authority says you can take so many pieces a back third, home For you.
2: example, a third of your finds you can repatriate for your own museum oh, okay. and the two-thirds will stay here as as treasure. And consequently, the national best stuff treasure went
0: out of Egypt. In as often places. as
2: not. I mean, it just very, very recently, the Egyptian antiquities authorities were making a noise, as they do periodically in the paper, about getting back that particular head. Zahi Hawass.
0: Yes, yes, yes. All right, yeah. interesting. And this, of course, leads us to thinking about the Elgin marbles. Oh, and yes. uh, we've got somebody from Greece here and, of course, uh, one of the great attractions in London are the, um, the the beautiful carvings, uh, stone carvings from the Parthenon, which stood uh, on the Acropolis in Athens. And they end up in London, in the British Museum. Uh, London has long said, well, you guys don't have a decent place to put them or whatever. And hmm. uh, now Greece has uh, built a wonderful new museum. And I understand there's actually, at the base of the Acropolis in yes. Athens, and there's actually a beautiful room that's empty right now, waiting. It's designed well, for it's the not Elgin Mormon. It's no? not
3: empty because, um, well, Lord Elgin managed somehow, I won't get into details now, to get all of those marbles to Britain and um, the government took them from him because he owed them a lot of money. So he had to pay them somehow and that's how the government got them. They got into the British Museum. That's really, that's how it is. Anyway, uh, they got into the British Museum and in the beginning they said that they would keep them as long Greece could not afford to have them. Of course, you know how it is. Could not
0: afford to have them, meaning buy them or house them well?
3: Not buy them, but house them well and protect them. But um, anyway, of course, uh, when something stays so long in a country and it is one of the main attractions, then you usually don't want to give it back, which is quite logical, I think. But we do want to get it back or to have it back. I don't know if we ever will, but that's what we want. We call them the Parthenon marbles. We don't like to call them the Elgin marbles, you know, because I'm Greek. I have to say that. But uh, now it is true that we have a wonderful museum, a new museum, that is based at the foothills of the Acropolis. And the last floor of it is aligned to the Parthenon. You can see the Parthenon from it. It's a complete alignment and it has exactly the exact size of the Parthenon deliberately because it is the room of the frieze of the Parthenon. The Parthenon, which was the main temple of the Acropolis, had two friezes all around, and the greater part of them is in London, but a part of them is in Athens. So that is exhibited there, and whatever is missing is as a copy there in a slight different colour, so that you know that that is a copy to see. So you get to see the whole two friezes of the Parthenon looking simultaneously at the frieze and at the building itself. And I find it very important, and that does not have to do only with the Parthenon marbles. It has to do with every antiquity and with every monument in this world. I think it is important to have the architectural parts of the monument there where the monument is and there where they originally stood, because only then you can understand really the connection and you can understand how it looked like and what it meant for the people.
0: It's interesting that you say that, Anastasia, because when I travel around Greece at every wonderful site, there's generally a wonderful museum. It might be a small museum, but it's a very thoughtful museum that helps you look at the treasures that can't be outside in the acidic air exactly. and understand the context. And then you walk through that ruined site and it has much more meaning. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Colin Clement and Anastasia Gaitanu about antiquities. And our phone number is 877-333-RICK. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And Norman in Ottawa, Ontario is calling. Norman, thanks for your call.
5: Hi, Rick. How are you doing?
0: Doing well. you have a thought on archaeology or antiquities?
5: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to see a lot of uh, the antiquities in place in, in some of the classic areas of the world, but it, it surprises me uh, a bit about Spain. I mean, in Spain you can see everything from cave paintings that are tens of thousands of years old all the way up through Rome and into the more modern era, and yet there doesn't seem to be any organized archaeological tourism in that country. Have you guys ever run across that?
0: You know, Spain has had a problem with leaving stuff in the wild and people vandalizing it and two-bit thieves stealing it. This isn't ancient, but it's quite old. It's Romanesque treasures from humble little churches and villages up in the Pyrenees Mountains. And it was catastrophic how many of them were just vanishing as two-bit thieves would take them and sell them on the private market until Barcelona finally made this wonderful Catalonian art museum that now protects all of those Romanesque treasures.
5: Sounds like maybe they're just uh, behind the times or trying to catch up on on the preservation of their antiquities. I guess that's their first goal, I guess.
0: Well, I think it's an expensive struggle all over Europe to... I mean, you're saddled with the patrimony of Western civilization. Italians often complain about this, you know. It's expensive to have Pompeii. It's expensive to have the Colosseum. And uh, a lot of tourists gripe about paying 10 bucks to see it, but it's an it's a ongoing uh, chore and expense to keep it up to snuff. Any thoughts on that, Colin?
2: Well, absolutely. The preservation. It's, it's a huge expense. And some of the countries that actually have the most, I mean, thinking of Greece we were talking about just a minute ago, I mean, it's, Greece is a relatively poor country, which is saddled with all these signal sites within Western archaeology. And the upkeep of them is, is very, very difficult. Sometimes it's better not to excavate, to leave things underground. I'm not familiar with the archaeology of, of Spain, but I wouldn't be at all surprised, as you say, given its history, that there are many, many sites out there, but they may not have been exploited quite simply because the resources have not been found to, to pump into them.
0: I know in Ephesus, in Iona, which is the west coast of Turkey in 2,500 years ago it was part of the Greek world, um, Ephesus, 70% of it is yet to be excavated. They know it, they just don't have the money to do it well at this point, and they're, they're happy to leave it covered up. And then in time, when they can do it properly, they will peel back the dirt and reveal the uh, remains of that ancient city.
2: It's also worth stressing, perhaps, is that, that archaeology is a very modern discipline. Initially, it was just it was sort of looting to put things into museums. It's only within the past, say, 30, 40 years that sort of systematic and scientific approaches to stratigraphy and the application of chemistry and the involvement, indeed, not just of people who can read ancient Greek and ancient languages, but, but, but architects, stonemasons, people who have all those, what we'd consider to be you know, necessary skills within modern life, are, are being brought in to look at these sites.
3: But maybe if I would give you some figures that would help you understand a bit. I mean, I can talk about, of course, about Greece mainly, but we have officially about 2,500 archeological sites. Of those, only about 20 are making serious money. And everything else, of course, has to be preserved as well. And if you need an X amount of money for excavation, you need three times that to preserve and maintain whatever you have found. So you can understand that we're a very small country. We just can simply not afford So when the tourist
0: goes to Athens and pays what seems like a small ransom to go to the Acropolis they're helping fund the preservation of all exactly. of this ancient Greek civilization that gets almost no tourism compared to the top three or four sites that everybody's going to see.
2: If you think about it, it's 12 euros for a collective ticket which gets you into the Acropolis and six other s- ancient sites. Well, that's not bad that's at all. That's a very good <laughs> that's deal. That's a tea It's hole. an extremely good deal. <laughs> so $18 to the see the... That's the most
3: expensive ticket everywhere yeah, in yeah, Greece. Yeah. No, it's a very well, good that, deal. Well, it's
0: an unfortunate irony that the, the countries perhaps least able financially to take care of all this are the ones that are saddled with the vast majority of the uh, ancient treasures of our civilization. Norman. Well,
5: hopefully the people in Spain, all the authorities in Spain, will take some hints from Greece because there are so many sites that you can basically just walk up to and you think, that's really great, you're getting really close to it. But then again, as you point out, you realize... This isn't going to last forever unless somebody
0: protects it. Oh, so. it, it saddens me to see a Roman mosaic just scattered like a, a deck of cards that fell off a table.
2: The other side of the coin, however, is that some of these archaeological sites which get turned into real cash cows, and I've seen that happen in certain, well, in certain countries, um, is that they, they lose all of their sense of history and their sense of awe because they're just turned into things that produce ticket money and give room for hawkers to sell junk. I mean, if you still can in Spain walk into sites unpestered by such thing and can get up and physical to the monuments without damaging them, obviously, right. then think yourself lucky. One of my favorite archaeological sites in, let's say, the Western world, I mean, it's actually in North Africa, is in Tunisia, the, the city of Duga in northern Tunisia, which it is protected, is looked after, it is excavated, but they've left it essentially open. And you can walk around what was a Roman town from about the second century AD, and the floor mosaics are still in place. Wow and in springtime the wildflowers are all out and it's just an absolutely gorgeous sight
0: and you're a fan and, of that that's a good thing
2: oh uh, yes to be able to get up close to see it in its natural context rather than seeing it as a commodity to which people are bust right is a pleasure i must admit
0: tourism is the number one source of foreign revenue and employment uh, in a lot of these countries mm. so it's uh, it's an interesting dance mm. norman thanks for your call great thanks guys you bet I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Colin Clement and Anastasia Gaetano about the antiquities of Europe and all of the headaches that goes along with having to host the greatest treasures of our Western civilization. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Up next, we take your calls and emails about how to travel affordably. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. And you can email us at radio at Hello,
4: my
2: name is Elizabeth Van Hest, and I was born in the Netherlands. And I'm going to teach you a tongue twister, what we use in the Netherlands. So, Lotje Liesje de langs de lange lindenlaan. That means Lotje, a girl, taught Liesje, another girl, to walk along the lane of linden trees, a long lane of linden trees. So that makes leer de Lange
0: I'm convinced that spending a lot of money is not a prerequisite for having a good trip, and I'm always on the lookout for new ways to travel affordably. Right now, I'm turning to you, our listeners, for advice. How do you keep traveling when times are tight? Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And you can leave us your thoughts in the radio message board at ricksteves.com. Diane's on the phone in Rentham, Massachusetts. Diane, thanks for your call.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much. The reason I had called was because I, I just wanted to uh, let people know that you don't uh, you know, need to spend a lot of money and go through a travel agency to have a great trip in Europe. When my daughter graduated from college, uh, she got a doctoral degree, and we wanted to do something special for her. So we invited her to go to France, and we asked my father as well to go along. So there were three generations, my father, myself, and my daughter. And I planned it for probably a year, year and a half. But I used a lot of uh, different websites, read a lot of books, uh, got to know exactly where we were going, what we wanted to do. What I found most helpful, I think, was um, reading reviews that people had written who had traveled there.
0: Now that's interesting, Diane, because you probably use TripAdvisor then all the time because a lot of people wonder how much of that feedback on TripAdvisor is put there by restaurants or hotels or their enemies to make them sound good or bad. Did you find that there was a um, honest advice on the on the site?
4: Yes, I did. Yes, I did. We stayed at a, a hotel right near saint Michel, near the metro and people had raved about it. it it was centrally located we got up onto the sixth floor so we it wasn't a very noisy room um and pretty much i found what people had said about you know the the rooms being a little bit on the small side mm-hmm. um was true and uh you know the service there was very good it was what they uh, said it would be. And a lot of times, too, you can get email um, addresses so you can write to people and, you know, you can uh, ask questions. Um, another site that I went to was VRBO, Vacation Rental by Owner, and we rented a villa down in Provence. Um, the woman was, was just lovely. Her name was Carol Ann, and um, it, it was very affordable as well. It was right outside of a, a small town down there. And
0: um, it was $800 a week. Wow, for, um, for all three of you then?
4: For all three of us. And it was a three-bedroom building. <laughs> it was right on the lake.
0: So VRBO, um, v- Vacation Rental by Owner. By more and four. more people are getting into those kind of uh, alternatives mm-hmm. to hotels to travel smartly. So basically what you're saying, Diane, is anyone with a computer can be their own travel agent. And it sounds like you know, you know what your interests are and what you want to get out of your trip. If you can put in the time, as you did, you plan this for a whole year, mm-hmm. you can really put together a smart trip.
4: I've done the same thing. We're going to Italy. My other daughter graduated with a degree in history, so wow. she wanted to see Rome. She wanted to see Florence. Good um, for you. And like I said, you know, no one knows better than you what your interests are, so you can make that your schedule, uh, whether it's horseback riding, whether it's museums, whether it's beautiful parks or going to the beach. Uh, I can uh, just tell you one thing. I had been emailing with a girl working in, um, in one of the little towns in the Chianti region, and I had said that we would love to learn how to make pasta. Could she recommend any good cooking courses over there? And she actually invited us to go to her in-law's home and make pasta with her (laughs) mother-in-law.
0: Wonderful. That's probably the best cooking school you could get.
4: Exactly. And, (laughs) you know, a lot of the classes were like $200. I know they're expensive. Why don't you just
0: make friends and make some pasta tonight? Exactly.
4: So we (sighs) have made friends. Actually, we've been emailing back and forth, and I look forward to meeting her and my daughter's excited about taking a cooking class. Well, you you, know? s-
0: you sound like a great uh, tour guide and a great parent, Diane. Mm-hmm. Thanks, thanks <laughs> for your call, and happy travels.
4: Thank you very much. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye now.
0: And we're talking about ways we can stretch our dollar and maximize our experience as we uh, enjoy traveling overseas. Kim's on the line with uh, some travel tips from Ontario. Kim, thanks for your call.
6: Hi. We took our children to Europe last uh took three teenagers, so there were five of us. we did five weeks in France for between ten and twelve thousand dollars canadian all included
0: so a family of five
6: family of five
0: five weeks yeah for ten thousand
6: we so thought that was a pretty good deal
0: two thousand bucks per person for five weeks that yeah. is a good deal including your airfare
6: that's everything that was that was everything the clothes our food our Wow. Our souvenirs, everything.
0: And how did you travel so
6: reasonably? What was your trick? Um, Well, I spent a lot of time doing a lot of research ahead of time, so we had a pretty good idea of where we wanted to go. You know, Watched the air flights, uh, managed to get there and back with Zoom before they went out of business. Found a, a really inexpensive hotel downtown Paris in the heart of the Latin Quarter, so we didn't have to spend extra money on public transit. Once we were down there we could walk to everything. We walked all over including up to Mall You know, we didn't spend a lot of money on the room because that's not where we wanted to be. We wanted to get out, you know, see the sights. So it was quite crowded but it was cozy and then we left the city and rented a vehicle and again our travel agent tried to get us a van and I said no, we need a small car and sure enough we saved a thousand dollars by going from a van to a car. Then what we did is we had two central locations. We wanted to spend time in the north, so we rented a house in Brittany for two weeks and rented a house down in the south in Long Duck for two weeks. And hmm. that was really inexpensive because we could get the houses for about $400 a week. Um,
0: wow, that's Canadian. great. Now, how did you find the houses uh, for rent?
6: Internet. We searched on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and. You know part of it was we went at a good time of year we went um, April and May.
0: So you're saying four hundred dollars a week housing a family of five That's correct. and then you have your own kitchenette too where you can uh, go to the exactly. market and cook for the price of groceries so that sounds pretty good we and did you had a family of five in a not in a big van but in a regular sized car yep. you must have been packing lightly
6: They were each given a backpack the previous Christmas and told you get one backpack each that's it. So it meant that we could fit everything in the vehicle. It also meant because we had a house, we had laundry facilities at each of the houses, so we bring stuff for a week to ten days. We had lots of space in our backpack, and we really didn't need any more. And we had read some of your books before we went as well, so, you know, we knew that just a backpack is so much easier. We're putting, um, you know, those plastic lock things on them, so we're walking through the metro station. We're not worried about anybody... Opening our bags. Right.
0: And Yay, Mom. You are good. Now, are your kids uh, teenage or younger?
6: They're teenagers. When we went, they were 15, 17, and 19.
0: And that must have had a valuable experience for them as teenagers. It was Enjoying
6: awesome. It. Wow. And the teachers were all supportive. We could take them out of school. One of them was doing some schoolwork um, while we were there. You know, they were all, keep- right. we made them all keep journals. They all took their own photographs. And we had access to, we found uh, the media text which are like um, libraries, but they're electronic libraries. So we could go in and you could have an hour of Internet for free. So we could um, check our travel email address and the kids could sort of check in every once in a while. You know,
0: all over Europe, uh, libraries provide free Internet. And and Internet access is quite expensive. And if you take a family of five into a library for an hour before dinner, you've probably saved uh, 30 bucks. you know, on on Internet access.
6: Well, and the other thing about having the house is, you know, there were times when... You know, we'd have a really long day because you know we did a whirlwind tour of the Loire Valley and we did you know whirlwind tour of the D-Day beaches and you know you're gone for ten or fourteen hours. So the next day we'd have a short day, right? And it was nice to have a house because the kids could relax and they could watch movies and we could do you know just day trips around. And
0: you know, um, Kim, I think you're talking about the family travel of the future. I mean, with uh, you know a high cost of living and all this kind of thing, that just sounds wonderful. Thanks so much for well, an thank you. inspirational report.
6: Okay, thanks.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Stephanie emailed us from Smithtown, New York. She said, I'll be studying abroad in Barcelona, Spain for four months. I want to travel to other countries in Europe during my stay. Is it most efficient and cost-effective to travel by plane or by train? My son spent a whole semester in Rome and it was amazing how much he flew. When I was a kid, he didn't fly. Nobody flew. It was too expensive. But nowadays, you can go cheaper by air than you can by train in a lot of cases. So, When you're set in Barcelona, talk around, look on the web and so on and find out you'll get a lot of discount flights out of Barcelona that can let you zip over to Paris or Rome or Lisbon for an exciting uh, long weekend or something like this. Uh, Of course, there's options to take trains, buses, and and boats as well. Uh, I would remind you that a lot of Europeans understand that it costs a little more and it takes a little longer to take the train, but from an ecological point of view, uh, you're doing the environment a favor by traveling by train rather than flying. So there's a lot of things to consider there. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number, 877-333-7425. Email is at radio at ricksteves.com. Boy, these days, we got to be sure that we get the most experience and travel fun out of every mile and dollar in our travels, and uh, if you've got some tips, we'd love to hear them. Ron's on the phone in Dallas, Pennsylvania. Hi, Ron. Thanks for your call.
7: Well, thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah. Some thoughts on uh, traveling inexpensively in Europe?
7: Well, I'm not sure it's all that expensive, but it's, it's better than some of the alternatives. We had a family group of five last spring going for a total of 10 nights, and we decided to stay in apartments rather than hotel rooms.
0: And how did that work out?
7: Yeah, it worked out great. We found a place in Barcelona that had actually had four bedrooms. You could have lived there permanently, very comfortably, and that was uh, 200 euros a night, which may sound like a lot, but... Compared to the cost of at least two hotel rooms, probably was a savings.
0: Oh, it's hard to get a hundred euro hotel room these days in Barcelona. So, and and then, as other callers have mentioned, you had a kitchen there where you could, if you wanted to, uh, cook your own meals.
7: We had a kitchen and we did that sometimes. But the best part, when you're traveling as a family group, especially, I think, is you have a place where you can just spend downtime together and really enjoy the experience and talk about things and you know, enjoy a a unique destination, an exotic destination as a group.
0: And have a comfortable nest instead of being separated in stark little budget hotel rooms.
7: And, right, and not worry about uh, maybe coming back to take a break in the afternoon and then going back out because you could really be undisturbed as people came and went.
0: You know, for the first time in my life last year, I stayed in apartments on several occasions, and I I know this is a trendy sort of thing, and it's an alternative to expensive hotels, and people like to have that nest that you're talking about, and more and more people are enjoying settling in, staying a longer stretch of time, traveling with small groups, and it does make a lot of sense. I would assume that's well-located so you can pop out and be right in the action.
7: Well, that's true, and and one thing that that I did is I I checked out the locations on Google Earth or Google Maps to make sure exactly where we were. Sometimes the the sites are a little uh,
0: uh,
7: exaggerated in their descriptions, so you can be sure uh, where you are. You know,
0: that's a good point. I think uh, websites, when it comes to website business sites and so on, buyer beware, I mean, they can hire people to con you into thinking they're much more comfortable and spacious and central than they really are. So you need to be careful Uh, that way.
7: That's true, but I have to say this. We were very satisfied. There were really no problems at all. Everything was what it was you know, expected to be, and more in most cases. Believe it or not, I started by just going into a search engine and putting apartments in Barcelona.
0: Good. And then you found that the, the communication was straight, and the people were good business people, and you could uh, make a reservation after reviewing it and give them your credit card, and they met you and got you set up, and it all worked as planned.
7: All did I, I was careful I, some sites you know just appear to be higher quality than others, and there are so many that you, you really don't have to compromise. Uh, look for user comments, mm-hmm. look for a lot of photos so you, you have a good idea what you're looking for.
0: Were most of these sites people who organized a bunch of individuals' apartments and then they served as a clearinghouse for people coming in to book them and they would probably do the uh, setting up and the, the business and they would get a cut from these people who were providing their apartments to this little business to be the, the godfather of apartments in that town?
7: Exactly, and then they basically they turn you over once you've made the reservation. They turn you over so that you're dealing directly with the apartment owner.
0: I see. So, and these owners would be just uh, pensioners and so on that had more space than what they needed, and they had a little uh, source of income by renting out their apartment and probably living in a smaller place upstairs or something like that.
7: Some were uh, one in Barcelona. Actually, was a, a place that a, a young couple had purchased this building, had rehabbed the whole thing beautifully. Uh, had decided that there was more opportunity in the vacationer market than in the long-term rental. So Ah. they were gradually converting the whole thing to being uh, short-term vacation rentals.
0: There you go. All over Europe, we're seeing this happening. So, uh, Ron and Dallas, thanks a lot for the heads up on that. You're welcome. Happy travels. And we have an email from John in Alexandria, Virginia. And John writes, uh, when Americans think of the south of France, they usually think of Provence. But Provence is crowded and crazy and full of Yankee tourists. A little to the west, Languedoc has many of Provence's assets, but is largely uncrowded, peaceful, and Yankee-free. It's considerably less expensive. Languedoc deserves more attention from enterprising American travelers. John, that's a very good tip. I think a lot of people know that Provence is sort of the, you're in Provence, uh, quintessential south of France, but you get the south of France ambiance in Languedoc. Great towns in Languedoc. Uh, Carcassonne is beautiful at the foothills of the Pyrenees Mountains. You've got Albi. You've got a lot of history going back to Qatar times and just a fascinating chance to connect with salt-of-the-earth French culture in the region called Languedoc. Pat's on the line calling from Plano, Texas. Thanks for your call, Pat. Hi. So you've got some thoughts on flight connections?
8: I'm in Dallas, and I like to go from Dallas through Chicago onward to London Heathrow. When you get up the next morning, you get in at 10.30 at night, so when you get up the next morning, I don't get jet lag. Plus, if you're flying on economy tickets, anything less than 24 hours is a connection. So you don't get charged extra for making that stopover. Ah, so
0: technically it's not a layover if it's less than 24 hours. Right. Let's say you're traveling to Switzerland from the United States and you've got a, uh, a connection in London. You can right. A- you can book or ask your travel agent to book. Any connection within, not just the next one, but you can just say you want more of a connection within 24 hours and pay no extra for that.
8: That's exactly what I do.
0: What a great tip! You can do a lot in 24 hours, can't you?
8: It's perfect. And the biggest thing for me, I have, I, I really, I have jet lag, a terrible case of it. And you get in at 10:30 at night over there, and even though it's three o'clock in Dallas, you're tired, so you go to bed. You get up the next morning, you go see London, and no jet lags. We're doing it next month going to uh, Paris.
0: Okay, I don't quite understand how the 24-hour connection helps you with well, jet lag. Well,
8: anything over 24 hours is, is a, a layover. Yeah, I
0: understand that, but what does that have to do with your jet lag now? For Let's say you're flying to uh, Europe and you want to get a 24-hour freeway to spend a day in London without being charged for a layover.
8: When I get to London, I can go to the hotel and go to bed and go to sleep and get up the next morning, and I haven't lost a night's sleep flying over. Huh. I don't. I can't sleep on an airplane.
0: Right. So yeah. if I
8: leave Dallas at three o'clock, been then okay. Frankfurt at yeah. six o'clock in the morning or seven the next morning, I'm staggering when I get there. Yeah. But when I go that that daytime flight to London,
0: when I fly, I mean, you're going to change in London. You're almost there, anyways. You got a miserable day to get over jet lag. Doesn't, you I don't
8: would, have it because you go to bed when you get there. You go to bed, it's nighttime.
0: I see. Okay.
8: That, that flight lands at 1030 at night. There's a 9 o'clock flight out of Chicago that lands at 1030, and I did not have jet lag.
0: Okay. Well, that, that, Wonderful. I, so if you, you like to arrive in Europe then, regardless of this connection thing, you like to arrive in Europe at night so you can get from the airport straight to the hotel and, and sleep. Oh, absolutely. Okay. What I like about. That's
8: the only flight I
0: know of. Okay. Well, what I like about your tip is this idea that you can actually give yourself a day in Copenhagen if you're flying SAS or a day in Frankfurt if you're flying on Lufthansa and not pay for a layover by giving yourself a 24 hour time to run around. It's perfect. Yeah, it's very cool. Hey, thanks for the tip. Okay. Happy travels.
8: Okay, thank you. Tell me what this means.
7: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. This edition was produced by Sarah McCormick and by Tim Tatton. You'll find more in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Special thanks to Pat O'Connor and to Doug Patterson at KUOW in Seattle for studio help today. Join us next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.
0: Rick's weekly one hour radio program,
2: Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 130 cities across the country. Help yourself to free podcasts of past shows and audio tours of Europe's greatest sites and museums in the radio section of our website. For the latest on Rick's radio and TV work,
0: his guidebooks, and his European tours with small groups, visit ricksteves.com.